Hey everyone, welcome to the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast where we talk about literally everything Kubernetes related from cloud to on-prem, Kubernetes for infrastructure engineers and developers, and everything in between. My name is Michael Levan, and I'm joined today with Phil Affable, who is a software engineer over at Sophos. Phil, welcome. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me, Mike. Awesome, man. So today we're going to talk about a topic that is uh, obviously very important for literally everybody breaking into Kubernetes, uh, whether you're a month in, two months in, even a year in, I would say, and that's around beginner projects to learn Kubernetes. So the first yep, question that I fun time. Tend, absolutely. So the first question I tend to ask everybody is, what do you do exactly in the Kubernetes space? So over at Sophos, I manage a Kubernetes cluster running Jenkins. And for those who don't know, Jenkins is a, a CI CD tool and it's one of the first ones actually. And um, so we manage it from Kubernetes because it gives us the ability to spin up agents on the fly and then destroy them once the build jobs are complete. Got it. Okay. So you're running Jenkins, the, the pipeline tool inside of Kubernetes. Correct. Interesting. So what, it, what did that kind of entail? Like in terms of, cause I run Jenkins, you know, just uh, running it literally on, on, you know, an Ubuntu box or something, having that clustered from a VM standpoint. Um, I believe mm -hmm. there's like a SaaS version or something you can get uh, now. I, I could be mistaken there, but I feel like a lot of people typically run it like on a VM or something like that. So uh, I, and I think that you've kind of done that already as well. So running it in like a VM, a HA style environment, whether it's in the cloud, on-prem, et cetera, versus running it in Kubernetes, what was uh, like, what are the differences there? Like, like the key differences that, you, that you've seen? So the, one of the big differences is just upgrading and updating Jenkins is much smoother and easier with Kubernetes because all you have to literally do is just change out the container image and, and then um, deploy it within Kubernetes. And Kubernetes does all the task of spinning up new containers based on that new image. But I, also I think one of the, the biggest ones is actually, um, or biggest improvements is the pretty much cost. So if you use Jenkins in the past, you may be running a separate VM just for your agents. And that can quickly get out of control, especially if you're spinning up hundreds of agents for various tasks. And uh, with what Kubernetes allows us to do is just um, spin up these agents dynamically. So you're not running instances all the time. And it's just whenever someone wants to deploy these um, uh, Kubernetes agents gets built up and uh, they do the uh, build job on their own. And once it's complete, they get crushed and terminated. So you, you're not built for any uh, idle instances. Right. So <clears throat> I would say that the two biggest things there then is number one, you don't have to worry about uh, those uh, Jenkins uh, built servers, right? You, you pretty right. much just run a pod, a Kubernetes pod that has Jenkins in it. It does your build, then you destroy it. And that's it. You don't have to worry about those costs. And then even from an upgrade perspective, I mean, you know, with Jenkins, you don't have to stage into the VM, switch out the binaries, make sure everything mm -hmm. works, et cetera. You literally just have a 
blue-green style deployment where you have, you know, right. the new image, the old image, you cut it over in Kubernetes, and then, you know, the, the new environment is up. Absolutely. You don't have to play around with making sure you have the correct JDK versions and all that hassle with making sure right. the plugins work. This is all taken care of by the container image. Exactly. Yep, yep. Cool. Awesome. So thank you for sharing that with us. Appreciate it. Uh, now, in, in your opinion, you know, just why Kubernetes in general? I mean, why do you think that it's important in today's world? Uh, do you think it's for, you know, developers? Do you think it's for infrastructure people? Do you think it's for on-prem, in the cloud, all of the above? What are, what are kind of your thoughts there around the whole why Kubernetes thing? So I, for me, from what, I, from the most, most of the use cases that I've been seeing, it's just, helps a lot with um, cost reduction. So right. I know everyone says the cloud is expensive and it can, especially if you're running it like a traditional data center where you're running instances all 24 seven and uh, um, you have no scaling involved. So right. there's, you have a set number of ins all the time, even though the demand for your app is low. So yeah, so what Kubernetes tries to solve uh, with this, it's just on demand. So whenever you need anything, it'll spin up a pod and uh, take away that pod when it's when that job is, is um, complete. But right. I think also it's just from, uh, so I came from an infrastructure background before I got into software development and from an, from, uh, an ease, from ease of management, Kubernetes allows you to control everything through code. And so, I mean, there are no manual changes these days in Kubernetes and you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> it's kind of odd if you are uh, manually doing stuff within the Kubernetes cluster, but um, yeah. So if, you, if you're doing everything through code, it's a lot easier to audit changes like who did what and also what did they change and uh, yeah, so one of the biggest challenges I had when we were running um, non-containerized um, applications, it was just a mess just trying to figure out um, what dependencies are needed to run this app on this server. And um, there may be downtime, there may not be downtime. So it's kind of um, difficult to track uh, the downtime for an application when you're doing upgrades, unlike Kubernetes. Like, once you change that container image, you know it's going to come up, come back up with the newest image because there's a lot of, I guess, testing involved to get that container out the door. And there's a lot, a lot more guardrails to prevent any adverse uh, reactions when you update the, uh, an app. Right. So cost management, I mean, I think that obviously makes sense. So back in the day, I'll say way back in the day when, uh, you know, with cloud and VMs and stuff like that, like you had an option where you had bare metal and maybe you ran a virtualized workload on it, but you had to pay mm -hmm. for the servers. And the more things that you had, the more servers you had to pay for them with, you know, cloud, the same thing, kind of, you still have to keep paying for these virtual machines, et cetera. Like if you need a new build server or you need a new runner or you need a new environment, et cetera, whatever, you constantly have to pay for these new environments. Whereas right. with Kubernetes, I mean, like taking your Jenkins example, you literally just don't need to pay for virtual machine runners. You just spin up pods. And yep. even from a cost perspective as well, I mean, 
in the grand scheme of things, if you're using something like Elastic Kubernetes Service in AWS, or if you're using uh, Azure Kubernetes Service in Azure or whatever, you're you're not even essentially paying for the service. Like you're really just paying for the worker nodes that it's running on. And can it be expensive? Yeah, but I, I would argue it's less expensive than spinning up a bunch of virtual machines to to essentially Definitely. do your job. Um, and even from an automation perspective, like you said, like could, can you run a kubectl edit on a pod and go edit a pod's manifest? Absolutely. Should you do that? No, of course not. There's no, no reason to in <laughs> Kubernetes. Um, you know, w w way back when, <laughs> I know people are still doing this now, but, uh, you know, let's say there was like a change in a web config file on a server or a different binary or whatever. Well, what would you do? You'd SSH in, you already, you'd RDP in, you'd change it or whatever, and you'd kind of hope that you can get to automating it <laughs> later on. All right. Yeah. But, and, and, and the reason why is because like, it was harder. You know, you had to go in, you had to write the code, you had to test the code, you had to step through a whole bunch of different steps to have the ability to automate this thing. And now, you know, you got to be able to test it and carve out the time for that, et cetera. But with Kubernetes, it's built with, like you said, doing everything with code in mind. So like mm -hmm. that stuff, it's just on by default, like on by default, you're changing things via code. You're changing things at scale horizontally and vertically. Definitely. Yep, exactly. Cool. So in terms of, you know, what, what you're ultimately seeing in, in Kubernetes the, the most today, and it doesn't even have to be at work. It could be just like, you know, things that you're reading, et cetera. Um, are, are you seeing things on-prem with Kubernetes or, or is it more like cloud-based, you know, what you're seeing in, in your day-to-day? -day? And again, you know, whatever you're reading, courses uh, that you're doing, any blogs that you're reading, et cetera. So a lot of the courses I see revolve around local Kubernetes clusters. So it could be um, Minikube, KubeADM, or um, Docker Desktop. So my favorite to use when I'm um, testing something new is just using Docker Desktop. It's just right there. It's easy to launch and um, easily switch context to get into it and just deploy my apps locally. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I feel like I'm either using Docker desktop or Minikube for my local environments for sure. Um, if I need anything that's a little bit more, you know, uh, production level ready, so to speak, uh, maybe I'll use like a sandbox for OpenShift, uh, or maybe I'll, I'll go into the Azure portal, for example, and I'll spin up AKS, but I'll do it on like <laughs> such a small virtual machine that it's going to cost 15 bucks if I keep it on the whole month, but it's obviously going to only be on for a day or two. So I definitely right. think, yeah, like getting those environments up and running, especially for beginner projects to learn Kubernetes, I would say that's super, super crucial. Now for, again, because we're, we're talking about beginner level projects, right? For Kubernetes. So you, I, you essentially have like two, two steps or two stages where you could have something like Minikube or Docker Desktop, or then you can use something mm -hmm. like a smaller worker node inside of Azure, AWS or something. Do you think for beginner level projects, it's important to use both? Yes. So so Docker, Docker Desktop, Minikube gets, lets you learn the basics and how to manage a cluster and how it looks like. Just run through the kubectl commands. But once you want to see how production environments work, that's when you start transitioning over to one of the cloud providers, so your AWS and your Azure. So primarily when I'm done 
messing around on my local environment, I'll spin up a small EKS clusters just to see how things would react if I shift from my machine to the cloud. And uh, that's a great way that I found that's a great way to learn how um, Kubernetes will handle a certain new change that I've done. And that, uh, so yeah, my, my process usually goes um, Docker desktop, then to EKS. Got it. Cool. So essentially, you know, let's say you're, you know, writing a new Kubernetes manifest for some Docker image that you just created, you know, some test web app or something like that. What you would do is you're like, okay, I want to see if this Kubernetes manifest in this Docker image is even going to work. So I'm going to deploy Definitely. it locally. I'm going to see if it works. Maybe I'll do a little bit of kubectl port forwarding so I can hit the web app locally if I need to. And then once you're like, okay, this works uh, the way that I'm expecting the code works the way that I'm expecting the, you know, all the pieces from a Kubernetes standpoint are working the way that I'm expecting. Now let's give it a shot in where I would run it in, you know, quote unquote production, even though you're using a small EKS cluster, you're still running it in EKS. So it doesn't matter if you're using a uh, M2 mini or if you're using an MXXL, right? Yep. Yep. It doesn't matter. Just whatever it's the cheapest option available just so I can do my testing. Right. Okay, cool. And in terms of the environments, you know, we talked about EKS, AKS. Have you seen any of the other ones being used like DigitalOcean's Kubernetes service or, or Linode's Kubernetes service? Yes. So um, when I used to run my basic blog website, I used to use, I was playing around with Linode and DigitalOcean, but I ended up going with DigitalOcean because costs were just a fract, uh, I guess, couple cents cheaper or a couple dollars cheaper. Not not by much, but I just like going with the cheap option for this project. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. So especially in like a dev environment, right? Like even like for your blog or anything, just to test things out and see how it goes. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to uh, yep. pay more if you don't need to. Yep, so. yep. And one thing I found surprising was just how rich the yeah, the digital ocean implementation of um, Kubernetes was. So what I mean by that is they had a fully detailed documentation on how you, how you set up stuff and um, some common use cases. And it's pretty good learning experience. That's awesome. Very cool. So in terms of like seeing between AKS, EKS, DigitalOcean, Linode, it, is it all kind of the same thing? Like, you know, for, for the listeners here, let's say they, they decide to break into EKS or, or, or uh, LKE for in Linode or DigitalOcean. I mean, will their experience with working with Kubernetes be any different than, you know, Minikube or, or whatever? So for the cloud vendors, yeah, I mean, like, um, you know, like, w will their experience working with Kubernetes in general, like, it's it's not going to really be any different, right? It's you're just gotcha, using kubectl yeah. commands, Kubernetes manifest, like, they're not, it's not different between environments. Right. So I think the point of Kubernetes was just to remove the, I guess, the different vendors and make it so that you can easily deploy from, let's say, AWS um azure DigitalOcean, linode and it shouldn't the vendor should shouldn't matter on how once you get that kubernetes cluster up and running and but where it's different is just pretty much setting up the clusters there's some little nuances between them but they're kind of close but once you get those clusters up and running shifting your app around to whichever vendor super simple right 
Yeah, exactly. So when you're creating those clusters, do you recommend that, you know, engineers have any prereqs, so to speak, you know, like, so for example, if they're going to create an, an EKS cluster, it, mm -hmm. if they're going to continue to do it, it probably makes more sense to say, use Terraform so they can create it and destroy it, you know, at a whim versus going through the UI. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I, that's how I recommend people just creating these clusters or you don't have to know a lot of like infrastructure code, like Terraform. Like I personally use Terraform a lot and especially to spin up these clusters, but um, just basic amount of um, understanding of Terraform is good enough to launch a cluster easily. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And this is something that I talk about a lot, which is like the prerequisites, right? So like, you know, when you're thinking about getting a beginner level project up and running, you know, well, let's say that's an EKS or, or wherever, that there's also prerequisites to that, right? To like make it right. so you're running it as efficiently as possible. I mean, you know, we all know that like we're either labbing in the mornings or at night, maybe a little bit on the weekends. So it's going to be a major pain in the butt if like you have to create and destroy a cluster manually three, four times a week, you know, cause things happen. Like, let's say you go to do it at night and you know, you're, you're 20 minutes in and uh, you know, you got to go do something. You got to go run an errand or something pops up. Well, you don't want to leave it up and running because it's costing you money. But if you delete it, it's just gonna, you're going to have to go and you're gonna have to redo it manually. So yeah, have, right. having those prerequisites of like automating what you're doing totally makes sense. Even in a dev oh. environment. Yep. And Perfect. once you start using Terraform or any type of infrastructure as code, you can easily put that into a pipeline and set that pipeline in a cron. And then so you can pretty much automate the upgrades of your uh, Kubernetes clusters. Yeah, for sure. 100%. And, and, you know, funny enough, like if you're using Terraform, let's say in your dev environment that to spin up a cluster, it's not going to be that much different than what you're doing in your production environment. So, so you might actually even save you, yourself some time later. Like, let's say your 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 job, right? You are uh, tasked to learn EKS or, or or figure out automating EKS and stuff. Well, let's say you know you're labbing it up in your own environment and you write the Terraform code to do it, and then a month or two or whatever later, you have to implement it at work probably use 90% of that code. So you kind of save yourself a little bit of time there as well, just doing it right the first time around. Yes, that is definitely the advantage of Terraform or or any, basically any other infrastructure as code tools. You just write it once and then change a few variables and then deploy it to uh, dev and then change another variables, deploy it to a prod environment. Right, right, yep. All right, cool. So we're, we're kind of going through steps here. Uh, you know, first where we talked about what environments you should use. Next, we talked about, you know, how to create those environments and, and get them up and running and all that stuff. So, you know, pretend for all the listeners, you know, you now have your environment up, you now have it automated, it's all ready to go. And now it's time to actually break into the pieces of Kubernetes, start start doing some projects. So Phil, what do you think are the best beginner level projects for somebody, you know, just, you know, very fresh to Kubernetes? Oh, that's a good one. So the the project that I learned on was, um, was this blogging software called Ghost. You can do pretty much a similar thing with WordPress because... And the reason why I like this 
is it um, you can either spin up a ghost container by itself and it, it'll just be a standard ghost container uh, a ghost website and it had all the components already built in so you don't need a database but once I got deeper into my learning, I figured out that you can spin up a MySQL database container and then um, apply that to work in conjunction with the ghost container. And then once I shifted over to start messing around with Kubernetes and um, orchestrating the containers, I it allowed me to spin up two pods with one for um, the ghost ghost pod and the other one for the MySQL pod and just figuring out the networking behind all of that and how to force the two pods to talk together so that the ghost container can upload um, blogging data from the ghost website onto MySQL. That's a big one to learn because lots of um, production environments require, still use the standard um, application database model. So the, the, I guess the three tier app tier. Right. Yeah. So I think that even with that type of project, the cool thing is number one, the, the uh, container image is kind of already built for you. So you can just really break into the Kubernetes piece right from there. And like you yep. said, there are a ton of pieces that you can kind of learn just by that project. Just on the Kubernetes side, for example, you can get into liveness probes. You can get into readiness probes to check your pods, make sure that they're working correctly. Uh, let's say you want to think about logs well maybe you want to do some type of uh, sidecar in your pod where you can mm -hmm. pull your logs for your blog um, you can then learn about kubernetes services and actually exposing the blog website to some type of maybe cloud load balancer so you can actually reach that you know application uh, as if you were with any other application and there's also the database pieces so you know let's say you're like oh well i need to run a database how am i going to run a database. Uh, well, you know, I'm in AWS, maybe I'll run a small dev version of RDS and then I'll point my Kubernetes uh, manifests, you know, to the, the RDS instance. So yeah, there's right. like a million and one thing you, you can go down, uh, obviously the learning rabbit hole there just by, just by taking, uh, you know, a blog image, right? Now, right. what do you think about, um, you know, there's, there's obviously a huge topic between like stateless and stateful, right? Um, mm -hmm. Especially in Kubernetes, you know, some people say Kubernetes isn't ready for stateful. Others say it is. W what's your opinion in terms of, you know, if somebody's going to break into Kubernetes right now, should they go, you know, just the stateless route to, to get familiar? Uh, should they try both so they can kind of understand each side of the coin? Because um, the the Kubernetes experience is like is going to be quite different. You know, you have uh, APIs that are for stateful sets, and then you also have APIs or, or controllers rather uh, that are for you know your your deployment spec. So like, and and they both vary obviously uh, in terms of how it uh, how it uh, interacts with Kubernetes, what you have to do, all that good stuff. I think when you're yeah, so when you're learning. When you're learning, when you're first learning Kubernetes, definitely go with the stateless route because it will explain the basics to you. But once you get deeper into it, it's uh, 
definitely a good time to start looking to stateful because most production environments I've seen use uses the state the stateful stateful route and um, like primarily the just how to use the uh, persistent volumes and uh, that's pretty big and you can either like for me when I was learning through this going through this I was first using a ghost blog with uh, with RDS but then once I got deeper in how to implement uh, uh, MySQL uh, pod I started looking into how do I retain that data let's say if my uh, MySQL pod so somehow um, gets terminated and it needs to recreate recreated again I don't want to lose all that data so I looked up um, persistent volumes and how to keep all that data so irregardless if my if I lose my um, MySQL pod I'll still have that data and it won't affect uh, my my little project right right yeah no I, I totally agree with you there um, stateful and persistent volumes all that stuff is super crucial in production but you know just uh, getting beginner level topics out, right? I definitely agree with you with going the stateless route. For me, for example, like let's say I find something new uh, in a Kubernetes manifest that I want to try out. Ten times out of ten, I always just use the the default nginx container image. You know, yep. so like, for example, like when I was learning about liveness probes and readiness probes, it was like, well, I'm not just gonna I'm not gonna go build a container image for this. I'll just pull the nginx one. Um, you know, for anything, for like scaling, for for making services, for you, you can even do persistent volumes with the nginx one. So yeah, like my my go to whenever I'm learning something new with Kubernetes, uh, especially for beginner level projects. I, I always just default to the Nginx container image. Oh yeah, that's a super easy one to get up to speed with. And um, there was another one that was also super easy. I forget what the name of this was, but yeah, Nginx is a good one and it'll definitely get you up to speed on on how Kubernetes functions and what makes it tick. And the cool thing about it, is you don't have to write the container image, it's already um written for you so you can but you can go ahead and make changes to it right yep exactly yeah cool so so far we talked about you know we're, we're probably gonna wrap this up here in a few minutes everybody but we we, we essentially talked about you know nginx we talked about the ghost blog would you recommend any other beginner level projects or do you think that those two are, are pretty solid i mean i think those two are more or less a great place to start. Uh, but I was curious if you had anything else. Probably if you're in the monitoring space or if you're trying, if your job role is to monitor an application, you probably want to look into Prometheus. And I know Prometheus has tons of integrations with um, Kubernetes and that and how to extract data from a pod and an application running on a pod and send it up to uh, Prometheus. Yep, yep. And there's even the, the Prometheus operator, uh, which you know makes it a little bit easier to run Prometheus, run right. Grafana locally on your Kubernetes cluster. Awesome. Yep. Well, Phil, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, I really appreciate everybody that's been listening. I hope this episode was informative. Uh, Phil, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right.